one book to another in our Israel series. Over the last four weeks, we've spent time in the book of Joshua, and now we're going to move to the book of Judges. Let's briefly remind ourselves how we've got where we've got to so far. Right back at the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, we find God promising a man called Abraham that there will be a people, a nation, and a land that will be provided for his descendants. God miraculously delivers his people out of slavery in Egypt. He uses Moses to lead them out. The Israelites approach the promised land. Moses instructs the 12 spies be sent into the land to bring back a report. Uh, but only two of the 12 say the land can be taken. Uh, because of the, la- the nation's lack of faith, they spend another 40 years in the wilderness, in the desert. After Moses dies, his assistant Joshua is appointed to lead the people. Joshua is one of the two spies who believed that the land could be taken, along with a man called Caleb, which we talked about last week. So the nation of Israel, under Joshua's leadership, they cross the River Jordan. They see the walls of Jericho come down. They defeat the city of Jericho. They enter into and take hold of the promised land, and the land is allotted to the various tribes of Israel. That's where we've got to. I feel a little bit like one of those American presenters on one of those box sets, you know, previously on our Israel series. So that's where we've got to. As we move on, we find that Joshua has now died. And the book we're looking at today is the book of Judges, and it describes the nation of Israel and the life of the nation in the promised land from the death of Joshua through to the rise of the monarchy, the point at which Israel appoints kings. And one of the key verses which summarizes the state of Israel at that particular time is chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. That's a pretty stark statement. Everyone did as he saw fit. A tragic statement. Remind you of any nation now? People just doing as they see fit. It's a tragic statement in the light of all that God had done for his people at this time. He's established them in the promised land. Their pilgrimage has has ended. Many of the promises of God has been, have been fulfilled already. All they actually need to do now is occupy the land, displace the Canaanites, cleanse it of paganism, and they're there. They're home and dry. But very quickly, the nation loses sight of its identity in God, its identity as God's chosen people. They attach themselves to the people of Canaan, to their morals, to their gods, to their religious beliefs and their religious practices. And so in the book of Judges, we see this terrible cycle. The people sin. God removes his protection from them and allows oppressors to come in and overpower them. In their desperation, they then cry out to God. And as they do so, God mercifully hears their cry and raises up leaders to deliver them from their oppressors from their troubles. And these leaders were called judges. And we meet a number of them throughout this book, which is not surprising given that it's the book of Judges. And next week we're going to look at one of the most famous, a man called Samson, who had incredible hair. But that's another story for next week. This week we're going to focus on Judges chapter 6 and chapter 7 and a man 
called Gideon. Let me set the scene for you. Starts in Judges chapter 6, verse 1. It says this, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the, into the hands of the Midianites. Now, notice the word again. The writer of the book of Judges was kind enough not to start his chapter with the words yet again, but he could have done. We can see the emphasis here is on the fact that there is this cycle of disobedience and it just continues. And on this occasion, God removes his hand of protection and allows a group of people called the Midianites to oppress Israel. The Midianites assign help from other groups, the Amalekites and other groups of people, and the Israelites are forced to hide in dens and caves and strongholds as the Midianites, the Amalekites, and these other eastern people, they steal livestock and produce, and they leave the land completely devastated and impoverished. And by verse 6 of chapter 6, we read this, Midian was so, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out, to the Lord for help. So verse 1, they're doing evil. By verse 6, they're crying out to God. Because that that is actually a seven-year span. That's what we see, this period of suffering, and there's pain, and there's difficulty. And can I encourage you that at that point, God broke in. Suddenly, God breaks in. In his kindness, in his mercy, in his sovereignty, he breaks in. And can I encourage you that if you're feeling desperate today, if you're feeling in a place of hopelessness, if you're feeling in a place of devastation, maybe you're feeling impoverished materially or relationally or emotionally or spiritually, Can I encourage you that God, in his kindness, in his mercy, he can break in to circumstances as we cry out to him. And this is what happens in the book of Judges. And it happens as the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon. The angel introduces himself with these words. Judges 6, verse 12. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, Gideon's view of himself is very different to the statement here made by the angel. He's the youngest member of his family from the weakest clan. He doesn't view himself from a particularly positive point of view. And yet, through the angel, God declares him to be a mighty warrior. Can I say this seems to be the pattern throughout the Bible? Often God makes declarations over people who seem pretty weak, seem pretty powerless. There's a shepherd boy called David, no more than a young shepherd boy, and yet God sees his potential and declares that he will be king of Israel. The prophet Jeremiah says, I'm only young, I'm just a child, what have I got to offer? And God says, no, you're going to be a prophet to the nations. And the disciple Peter says to Jesus, you go away from me, I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says, no, Peter, you're going to be a great evangelist. You're going to bring many people into the kingdom. And so it seems that the pattern of the Bible is that God sees things in us that we don't see in ourselves. 
we see the red card and the ban. It's just true of Gideon. Sometimes circumstances of life come against us. We find that we believe lies about ourselves. Listen to this story. While walking through the forest one day, a man found a young eagle who'd fallen out of its, de- its nest. He took it home and put it in his barn, where it soon learned to eat and behave like the chickens in the barn. One day, a naturalist, you know, I've really struggled with that word. I keep wanting to say naturist, and that's a very different thing. One day, a naturalist passed by the farm and asked why it was that the king of all birds should be confined to live in the barnyard with all the chickens. The farmer replied that since he had given it chicken food and it trained it to be a chicken, it had never learned to fly. Since it now behaved as the chicken, it was no longer an eagle. An eagle. It still has the heart of an eagle, replied the naturalist. And surely it can be taught to fly. He lifted the eagle towards the sky and said, You belong to the sky, not to the earth. Stretch forth your wings and fly. The eagle looked around, looked back towards the barn, looked up to the sky. Then the naturalist lifted him straight towards the sun. And the eagle began to tremble. And slowly he stretched his wings, and with a triumphant cry he soared away towards the heavens. Now it may be that the eagle still remembers the chickens. He has a bit of nostalgia about it. It may be he occasionally even revisits the barn. But as far as anyone knows, he's never returned to lead the life of a chicken. Can I encourage people in this room today? Maybe you're feeling more like a chicken than an eagle. Maybe you're feeling you have little value. You've got not much to contribute. Maybe you're feeling like this. And if, if you are, can I say to you that God sees you in a very different way to the way you see yourself. Kate used a phrase when she brought those wonderful truths from Scripture about us. She used this phrase in the first person, I am God's very good idea. I, am, I love that. It really struck me. I am God's very good idea. God sees value and worth. So valuable. He sent his son to die for you. And there are things that he has for you that will bless you. And things that he has for you which will be a blessing to others. Let's be encouraged by the fact that God could see things in Gideon that Gideon couldn't see in himself. God could see the eagle in him. And that's the case for each of us. Now, Gideon, we've only got to the point where Gideon's get called so far. We haven't actually told any of the story, but Gideon's struggling with this overwhelming situation. He then asks God for a sign so that he truly knows it is God who's calling him. And so Gideon brings an offering to the angel. And this is what we read in chapter 6 from verse 20. The angel of the Lord said to him, 
take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock and pour out the broth. So this is the offering. And Gideon did so with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. The angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. So Gideon had some doubts about whether this was God. And there you go, Gideon. Looks like it might be true. With this in mind, Gideon begins to tentatively follow God's instructions. And what was the first thing he does? Does he go and defeat the Midianites? No, the first thing he does is deal with the sin of the people, the sin of the people of God. And sometimes we have to deal with the battles within before we deal with the external battles. We might see others are opposing us or against us, and there are things that might need to be tackled. But a good starting point is looking at our own hearts and ensuring they're right before God before we tackle other issues or pursue other issues. So before Gideon even thinks about the Midianites, he deals with the sin of his own people. Judges 6 from verse 25. That same night the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it, then build a proper kind of altar. I like that, a proper kind of altar. Come on, let's have a proper altar. To the Lord your God on top of this site, using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told them, told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning when the men of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. So Gideon deals with the worship of the gods, then he reestablishes the worship of the true God. And although he does this in secret, at night when no one's looking, and I think that's interesting, isn't he? He does all of that when no one's looking. By the following morning, it's very apparent to everyone what he's done. And I felt that the Holy Spirit spoke to me in regard to that. Can I challenge each of us as we look at this story of Gideon? That when it comes down to the worship of God, when it comes down to commitment to God, when it comes down to our desire to, to follow God and to draw close to Him, what we do when no one is looking in time becomes apparent to everyone. The times that we have with God in those secret places when no one else will see us they will flow out and they will affect aspects of other areas of our life. Things that all will see. Just want to encourage us in our quiet devotional times before God. And I challenge myself because I don't always get that right. But I know that as I draw close to God when I'm alone, that has a huge bearing upon how I am when I'm surrounded by other people. So what Gideon does in secret becomes apparent to everyone. And as we move through the story, it becomes clear that the next job on Gideon's to-do list is to defeat the oppressors and the enemies of Israel. So God has power, powerfully shown up through an angel. He's called Gideon. He's demonstrated his power through a sign. He's preserved Gideon's life as Gideon has dealt with the pagan worship. And so 
when it comes to instructing Gideon to defeat the Midianites, you think, well, it's a pretty clear job now. Gideon's got the message. God has spoken to him, called him, confirmed it. And yet, as Gideon is called to defeat these enemies, he has a bit of a crisis. It seems that he's beginning to doubt, can this really happen? And again, he asks God for a sign. Chapter 6, verse 36, Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. And this is what happens. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. So there we are, Gideon. The job's a good one. It's a sign. You can imagine the angels in heaven thinking to themselves, wow, God is so gracious. The Lord is so kind, so patient with this guy. He's asked for a sign. He's been given it. Now surely he's going to get on with the battle. That's, I mean, obviously I'm putting human characteristics into it. If I was an angel, that's how I'd think, you know, in heaven. So, but no, this doesn't happen, does it? Gideon still has some doubts. Judges 6 from verse 39 then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. You're thinking the angels are, what? What is this guy about? Is this guy serious? Gideon continues, allow me one more test with the fleece. What, the fleece again? What's going on? This time, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. How patient God is. How kind and merciful and gracious. So Gideon responds in faith to these two signs, and then he gathers an army. 32,000 men. It's a good army, isn't it? However, we read in Judges 7 verse 12, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples have settled in the valley as thick as locusts. The camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Oh dear. Sound like 32,000 isn't going to be quite a big enough army given the numbers described in this particular verse. But fear not, Gideon. God has a plan. And the plan is revealed in Judges 7, verses 3 to 8, which I'm just going to summarize for us. The plan is this. He reduces the army of 32,000 to 10,000. And then he reduces the 10,000 to 300. Great. 32,000 didn't seem to be enough. So in order to counter that, God reduces the number to 300. What is going on here? I believe this is one of the most central points of this whole story. By doing this, everybody, including everyone in the room today, is entirely aware that the victory here is God's. Because the odds seem impossible. And so only God can achieve this type of victory. And we'll read at the end of this chapter that the victory will ultimately be his. We haven't got there yet though, so before we celebrate that, we just need to remember who's in charge. Sometimes it's really important to be reminded who's in charge. A few years ago, I was much more involved in traveling 
to various churches, preaching the gospel, praying for people who are sick. I still enjoy doing that. I still do that sometimes. I do it slightly less because of my commitments here as, a, as the leader of the team. But I remember one time traveling up to Liverpool and um, speaking in a church there. And I'd reached the point where I was praying for people who were sick. And I was about to pray my best prayer and lay my hands on people as the traveling evangelist does. And as I was about to pray, I was interrupted by an elderly lady. She'd broken her wrist, and whilst I'd been speaking, whilst I'd been preaching, God had spontaneously and miraculously healed her, completely. To the extent she'd taken off this great big plaster, and she was waving her hand at me, like this. It is great. It is great. But to be honest, I was a bit put out. Because <laughs> I'd been interrupted as I was about to pray for the sick. And also I was a bit annoyed, to be honest, that she'd already been healed before I prayed. You know, the order was, we call people forward, I pray, then th- things happen. And, and I think maybe God had to teach me some lessons through that experience. And the main one... The main one, there's a number of lessons, yeah. The main one was the fact that actually he was in charge. He was the one doing the work. I've never healed anyone. God's healed thousands upon thousands of people throughout the history of the Christian faith. And as God heals, sometimes he lets me help, which is fantastic. I was humbled by this experience. So, in this story of Gideon and the Midianites, God makes the odds impossible. Makes them impossible. And then he demonstrates, look, I can do the impossible. I want us to be encouraged by this reality today. Bad backs. Oh, I've had a bad back for many years, many years. God can do the impossible. Let's pray and see what God does. So, before we get to the very end, before we celebrate the victory, let's just look back at one other section. Judges 7 from verse 9. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they're saying. Afterwards, you'll be encouraged to attack the camp. So... He and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. And then from verse 13, Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream. No, he didn't say that. I had a dream, he was saying. Around, I couldn't resist, sorry. I had a dream. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force, the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hand. Now, Gideon's listening to all of that. So in this section, God says to Gideon, right, you can go and take the Midianite army right now. I, the Lord, is telling you this. Or, if you're afraid, go down to the camp, have a listen to what they're saying. Option one, go straight in and attack. Option two, I'm a little bit afraid. 
I need more proof. I'm going to go have a listen. And yet again, Gideon has doubts and chooses option two. And yet again, God graciously provides evidence for him through this miraculous dream and interpretation. And this was good enough for Gideon. And he calls his men together and the oppressors were defeated. We've got there. Judges 7 verse 15 to 16. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Then from verse 19, Gideon and all the, and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed changed the guard. They blew the trumpets, broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets, smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hand, holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. It's a miraculous victory and a miraculous deliverance. And all the glory goes to God. 300 men. So my final thought for today is this. It seemed that Gideon, as we look at this whole story, it seems that Gideon was less than the ideal man for the job. Over and over again, he needs reassurance. He needed a sign right at the beginning when he was called. He then needs confirmation through the the fleece twice. And then when God gives him the options of either going to attack or if you're afraid, go and listen, he goes for option two. I want to encourage us today that our fears and our doubts, they do not disqualify us from what God has for us. They do not disqualify us from God's great work amongst us. Even in our doubts, maybe regarding a specific task that God wants us to do or calls us to fulfill, He has the ability and the power to uniquely confirm it to us. As we look into the New Testament, we see that Jesus doesn't reject Thomas because of his doubts. We look at Matthew 28, we find that Jesus commissions his followers, even though some of them had doubts. It says some of them doubted, and yet he commissions all of them, not just the ones with faith, but the ones with doubt. It seems that he commissioned all of them. So I want to encourage us today that we can fulfill the purposes of God even though sometimes we have doubts and we have fears. I encourage us today that God has the wonderful ability to overcome those doubts and those fears. And I believe he perhaps wants to do that for people even here, even today. Let me conclude by summarizing some of the things that I believe we can learn from this incredible story of Gideon. Firstly, when God's people were feeling desperate and impoverished, God powerfully and suddenly came to their rescue as they cried out to him. If you feel you're in that category, you can call out to God, knowing that he hears, knowing that he answers. Secondly, Gideon dealt with the sin before he went into battle. Since you're we win the internal battles for our heart as a priority. 
Next, what Gideon did when no one was watching became apparent to everyone. Let's ensure that our times alone with God are about worship, not about idols. Next, over and over, Gideon needed confirmation and reassurance from God because of his doubts and fears. Let's be encouraged that sometimes we battle with doubt and fear, but that doesn't disqualify us. It doesn't disqualify us from all that God has for us. And God reduces the size of the army to demonstrate it's about what he can do even when things look impossible. Let's be encouraged that sometimes if circumstances look impossible to us, God can come through. Let's ensure we rely on him rather than our own strength. Let's just stand for a moment. I wonder if the worship team could come back.